everyone, and welcome to our latest episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Ali McCluskey. Today, I'm privileged to be joined by Ganesh Rayo, Managing Director and Head of Financial Technology and Services at Thomas H. Lee Partners, or THL for short, the $16 billion private equity firm. THL invests in middle market growth companies exclusively in three sectors, financial technology and services, healthcare, and technology and business solutions. Since its founding in 1974, THL has raised more than $34 billion of equity capital, invested in over 160 companies, and completed more than 500 add-on acquisitions, representing an aggregate enterprise value at acquisition of over $210 billion. Some notable exits you may know include Black Knight, FIS, First Bancorp, and MoneyGram, among others. Dinesh has been with THL for over 20 years, coming from Morgan Stanley's Fig Group and after completing his MBA at that business school over in Boston that starts with an H. He is currently a director of Abacus Next, Dun & Bradstreet, ServiceLink Holdings, Ceridian HCM Holding Inc., AmeriLife Group, Auction.com, Hightower Advisors, Insurance Technologies, and Optimal Blue. And he's a board observer at Guaranteed Rate. We cover a ton of ground in today's conversation, including the ways in which private equity has changed over the past two plus decades, how THL is structured, where its latest $5.6 billion fund will be deployed, and the five identified sector opportunities Ganesh focuses on within financial technology and services. We also cover THL's sourcing and relationship building process with target partner companies, what THL's role becomes after a deal is inked, Ganesh's forward-looking theses on both vertical software with integrated payments and insurance tech and services, his most memorable deal on spending an atypical 13 years with that company before exiting, and a whole, whole lot more. So with that, let's jump in. Ganesh, welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We're thrilled to have you on the show today. Great, great. Thanks, Allie, and uh, delighted to be on. So where are you these days? I see a nice modern background, but always curious to know where folks are, are calling in from. I'm in, uh, in Boston, in the city. Uh, our firm uh, has one office here in Boston, but uh, sadly, uh, still working from home for at least this month. Well, I guess we'll enjoy those home comforts for as long as we can. And, and then, you know, something to look forward to when we can finally get back into the office. So We'll spend a lot of time talking about years at Thomas H. Lee Partners, or THL for short, but want to quickly take us back to your early career days. So how did you get into private equity and what were some of your most formative early career moments or memories? Yeah, taking me back a while, sadly. But uh, so I started off uh, like a lot of folks at our firm in investment banking, uh, was in the investment banking two-year program at Morgan Stanley in the financial institutions group. Honestly, I didn't know too much about investment banking until I got into it. And I didn't know too much about private equity until I got into that. But what excited me back then about private equity is investment banking, you're working on a bunch of deals. It's very transactional. And once a deal's done, you have no idea what happened and what's going on, no ongoing relationship for the most part with the business. What excited me about private equity is you weren't just advising others on a deal, you actually were doing the deals yourself. And so it was a way different level of commitment, I think, an ongoing relationship, and not just about doing deals, but also managing companies. That was exciting to me. So that's that's what got me into private equity. And I actually joined uh, THL out of banking in 2000, then uh, went to business school, uh, 02 to 04, and um, was, was kind of 90% sure I wanted to get back into private equity. And I wanted to get to 100% or <laughs> as close to 100% as one can get. And so I worked at a hedge fund for my summer. It was an amazing experience, a really 
great group of people, but realized private equity was more for me than, than hedge funds. Again, I think a few things I'd say is around, number one is working in teams. That's everything we do at THL and most private equity firms that you're working in a team. Number two is working in, in, in a team, not just to people at your firm, but a team is in working with a management team. And honestly, you know, as we do investments, you know, we feel like we're oftentimes part of that team. So it's not just the teams and the relationships you build at the firm, it's also teams and relationships you build outside the firm. And also just in, in, in private equity, your job changes every, as you mature and as you get more senior, pretty dramatically. And uh, so, yeah, I joined back THL in 2004, and it's been a you know, fantastic experience since then. Uh, a lot of, well, a handful of formative moments, but, you know, doing your first deal as, a, as, as an associate or a VP, and then ultimately as a deal leader, doing your first transaction uh, and exiting your first deal. Those are all pretty exciting and nerve wracking as well uh, moments. It's funny. I mean, it'll come as no surprise given I'm at Wharton, but I have friends who have done that exact same path of banking to PE to B-school, even down to the hedge fund summer to compare the paths, but are ultimately going back to PE. So I'm definitely dedicating this part of the episode to them and they're following in your footsteps. But let's talk about you mentioning you've been in PE basically since 2000. So that's two decades to watch the industry evolve. What's changed the most? Is it the economics, attracting talent, deal structure, media perception? I'm sure, you know, working in teams and getting to work on all different deals has largely stayed the same, but what's different? What's changed? Yeah, it's, it's changed a lot. It keeps on changing. And I bet 20 years from now, it's going to look very different than 20 years ago. When I joined the firm, we probably had somewhere on the investment side, 15 to 20 people on the investment side. We didn't have an operating team. We didn't have a capital markets team. We didn't have a business development team. <laughs> and so that 20 people today is probably closer to 60. And then wow. we have another 20 to 30 other investment operating folks, capital markets, business development. So I think what the biggest thing is the industry keeps growing and maturing. Back when I started in, in 2000, you know, we had three-person investment deal teams, pretty much every, you know, a lot of deals, 75% or so you get from bankers. It was not, it was meaningfully less competitive back then because uh, there was not the number of private equity firms there are. So, you know, the, the process of doing deals, the investment process, negotiating deals, it was very bespoke. And the industry's really grown up and matured and become certain things have become more like machine work uh, and less bespoke. And, you know, I think because industry's grown, matured, and also gotten more competitive. You know, we've also, we try to grow ahead of it and mature ahead of it, but, you know, we've, we've done that ahead of some of the changes as well as alongside them. And so it's a, it's been a, it's a dramatically different place, the industry and the firm today than it was 20 years ago. You know, I think, you know, pretty much, you know, mostly all for the positive. And so you talked about this place that the industry and your firm has gotten to over 20 years. Do you feel like you've changed as an investor over that time frame in either your investing style or process? You know, um, mostly not too much. Look, one of the things that's been the hallmark of our firm, you know, we've been in business for 50, THL has been in business for 50 years, has been focused on growth investing. And that has not changed. You know, we are growth investors. We're not turnaround folks. And so, you know, I think the focus on growth investing has always been there. But, you know, I think the increased, and, and I'll maybe touch on this later, but, you know, we increasingly specialized in 
the level of specialization we have today. You know, when I first joined the firm, I was a generalist. And so, you know, I was looking at media deals, healthcare, tech, everything, financial services. You know, now everything I do is in fintech. So I think specialization and then the ability also to look at deals with an angle of what can we THL do to the company with our operating team that we have, that's really changed, I think, my lens, how I look at things. Well, it's, it's a perfect segue to sort of contextualize and, and orient folks around what it is that THL does. So to give you know listeners some background, the firm has raised more than $30 billion in equity capital over the past 50 years that you mentioned THL has been in existence, most notably closing Fund 9 last October. So congratulations on that. $5.6 billion in capital commitments. So it seems like you're entering 2022 in great shape with some, some dry powder there. Give us a bit of background on the firm, how it's organized, and the overarching strategy looking into the years ahead. Yeah, yeah. So as you know, both you know, we've been in business for about 50 years. We have one office. We're all based in Boston. We have a little over 100 professionals at the firm. We organize ourselves uh, into three verticals. And you know, maybe what I'll say is there's really, I'd say, kind of three things that really differentiates our firm. You know, number one is specialization. And I started touching on that a little bit. The first form of specialization we did around 2006, which is moving into verticals. So we have three verticals, uh, at least the financial technology and services group. Uh, we have a technology automation business services group, and then a healthcare group. So three verticals. The second change we made was about five years ago. And, and now we're not just investing in three verticals. We only focus on what we call ISOs, identified sector opportunities within those verticals. And so, you know, within financial technology and services, you know, we do not try to cover all of it. We specifically cover five ISOs or five subsectors within uh, financial tech and services. And that's really just becoming, we think being more specialized and focused, being very deep and narrow is, is incredibly important to be successful. Uh, number two is our operating team. We call it the strategic resources group. We started that in 2006, 2007. It's 20 people today. And we think that's been a huge enabler for our portfolio companies to drive growth. That's about 90% of what they're focused on is helping our companies drive growth, whether it's human capital and recruiting in additional executives, creating M&A platforms, sales, improving sales teams and go to market. But it's a huge selling point for our firm with management teams as well. And it's been a huge enabler of, of success and returns. And then the third thing is, you know, I'd say is our partnership focus, you know, we have everyone at the firm, we all view as we view us as all partners and owners of the business. We have a mentorship approach at our firm. People start young and if their guard goal is to keep them forever. You know, a lot of us have had a lot of continuity at the firm. I've been there 20 years and a lot of other senior partners, similar, similar continuity at THL. And that's our partnership focus is also how we treat management teams. You know, we view ourselves as partners with them. We think of ourselves as owners, but co-owners with management teams. And, you know, we have a point of view and we have a process, but, you know, we want to do it together and together work with the management team to get to the right outcomes and really help create and build a, a great business. And, yeah, those are the things that, you know, I think really differentiates our firms and it has enabled us to have success over the years. Yeah, I mean, specialization, I'm a huge fan of. I think that's just the way that the information economy is transforming, we all have to become experts in smaller niches of whatever we're building. So that obviously resonates. On that point, you mentioned ISOs, five focus areas specifically within financial technology and services. Can you give us the 30-second elevator pitch on each one of those just to give us a bit of a flavor? Yeah, sure. So insurance technology and services is one. 
And that's around looking at two different aspects. You know, predominantly software companies serving insurance carriers or brokers. We think it's got a tons of additional growth left there. And then insurance distribution or services businesses. The latter, the focus is more on M&A platforms. Number two would be very analogous, wealth tech and services. And on the wealth and actually say wealth and fund tech, that's really focused around software catering to RIAs or the independent fee-based channel, which has got a lot of growth ahead of it, as well as on the fund tech side, looking at various technology, software, data analytics, serving actually the alternative asset market and serving private equity firms. Again, a sector that has a lot of growth left in it. The three additional ones is vertical software with integrated payments. And so that's really around buying great practice management software. And that's kind of the ERP or the software a small firm uses to manage their business and adding payments to it. Uh, CFO software, self-explanatory, you know, software the CFO is using. And then lastly, uh, banking software. Awesome. So, I mean, even within that scope, you've got quite a bit to work with. So yeah. help us continue to narrow it a bit and just explain within the context of middle market PE, what is the typical type of deal that's in scope and what's the typical size? To answer the latter first size, we have a $5.6 billion fund, as you know. We typically try to do about 15 deals a fund. So that's about directionally 300, 350 of equity in a, in a given deal. And so I'd say on this, from an enterprise value standpoint, the equity plus the debt, on the small end, 150 million. You know, on the larger end, probably about five billion dollars is kind of how we, you know, so there's a fairly broad range. But yeah, I think the sweet spots in the billion dollar range, enterprise value deals. And you know, in terms of what they the characteristics, it would be around companies and growth sectors. I think a strong point of view, I think that we've learned in our one of the key reasons we're so focused on subsectors is to become industry or subsector specialists and know the trends because our point of view is you can't fight an industry. If you're in a bad industry, no matter how great your management team is, your operating team and whatnot, it's a really, really hard uphill battle. And so you got to get the industry right and got to get an industry with growth. And so a THL deal looks like a deal that has good industry growth, a company with good competitive positions, and then an ability to do something with the business, um, an ability to, we like to use the phrase, bend the growth curve. Is there certain things we can do with our operating team or additional capital uh, to help accelerate growth or organically or also you know, via M&A? Absolutely. And I just have to say, I hear Professor Wessels in the back of my head for those who've taken corporate valuation at Wharton, you'll get the reference. When you talk about finding areas of the industry with growth, because similarly, one of his biggest points of emphasis throughout the course is to look for organic growth through two critical levers, momentum and market share. And to explain that just for a second, industry momentum in this case is the trends that will expand the overall pie. And market share is, of course, expanding your piece within that pie, which I think makes it easy to visualize why building a business in a shrinking sector is such an uphill battle. So Building on that, you've now refined your ideal target company. You have a good chunk of the assessment calculus. So how are you finding these companies? Obviously, you're building expertise and specialization, and you hope folks will just start knowing to come to you when it's a company directly in your wheelhouse. But walk us through whether it's an inbound or outbound process and what that process typically looks like. Yeah, it's near 100% and you know, pretty much 100%. Everything is outbound. We are trying to create deal opportunities. We will call on CEOs 
of companies for oftentimes, sometimes two to three years before there's an investment. Our goal is to get in front of every business that we think could be interesting in our size range, you know, well ahead of actually an investment opportunity arising so that we get to know the management team, get to know the business. And so how we do that is every single ISO is staffed with, you know, I sit over the team, but we've got probably three to four folks on the investment side, uh, a lead of that ISO. And we also have a business development team. So within financial tech and services, we've got a managing director that leads business development for us. His only job is sourcing. And we're adding two more two more folks to that team, to the business development team. And so if you take insurance software, their job is to start top of funnel, kind of landscape the market. Where within insurance software do we want to play? What are the companies that we, we then will do the, the landscape of the market? And then we then say, what are the companies that fit our size range? That narrows the 5,000 companies into maybe 1,000 or maybe actually probably 500 or so. And then we try to narrow it, narrow it, narrow it. And then cold call, call a bunch of CEOs, call a bunch of private equity firms or the owners of those businesses, and then try to figure out which one of those, which one we think is interesting, which one can fit, and then which ones could be transactable. But there's a lot of outbound calling we're doing to create deals. And you know, our goal is well before there's an investment opportunity, pretty much all our deals does have a banker involved, uh, given the size ranges. But before the banker is actually calling us on the deal, we have to be ahead of that. We have to know the business, know the CEO. And that also helps us, A, it gets us smarter, but we can also move very quickly so that in a very short period of time, we can try to you know move fast and capture the flag. Yeah, it makes sense. You sort of build that relationship slowly so that you can move very fast when you formalize and sort of engage yeah. in that formal process. Awesome. So I want to talk about a deal in particular, Abacus Next, because I've seen a lot of recent buzz on that. I know you're a big fan of integrated payment processing. You talked about that being part of one of the ISOs. Seems to be a big growth lever, integrated payment processing for Abacus Next. So maybe talk about what was initially attractive about that company, sort of, again, the, that relationship building and where you saw initial great signs from the company versus where you thought THL could really come in and add value. Yeah. And maybe just, it, it probably will be helpful. Uh, sorry if it's repetitive, if folks know this, but you know, the, the little bit of the industry backdrop and the thesis around software with vertical with, with integrated payments is... If you think about payments, and so what I mean by payments is the ability to accept the payment, predominantly credit cards. If you look at the ability to accept credit cards that really started off 30, 40 years ago with the banks enabling customers, SMBs and other customers to accept credit card payments. In the early 2000s, banks started to be additional ISOs, actually individual selling organizations came about and that was really feet on the street. People on the street literally selling you a credit card reader and and trying to be your processor, merchant acquirer. And then in the 2010s, it ended up people being like independent payments companies trying to partner with software businesses to offer payments. Our point of view is kind of taking it to the next level. And at the end of the day, payments is a commodity. It's somewhat simple and it is a commodity. There's a lot of people to accept it from and who, what is not a commodity is your practice management software. And that's a software that if you're, you know, in Abacus's case, that serves lawyers and law firms, you know, think five person employee to 25, 30, 50 person employee law firms or small law firms. That, that's the software they use to basically run their business. They use it for scheduling, for CRM, for their kind of contact database, for billings, for practice, you know, for case management. And then our point of view was that, hey, look, you know, we have a great software business with Abacus, a bunch of customers that rely on them. 
you know, to run their business, but they were basically offering, they were partnering with someone else to provide payments and not getting any economics off of it. And our point of view is actually bring payments in-house, offer payments yourself. You have to invest in that and build up the capability and the technology to do that. But by doing that, you not only provide a better customer experience because it's integrated and built into the software, you also generate additional economics off of the interchange. And so it's to me a beautiful business in that you, know, you can buy a business that does whatever the revenues are today, you can actually increase the revenues naturally by taking the payments in-house and also provide at the same time a better customer experience. So in Abacus's case, we saw a really good software business, very happy customers, but a really strong ability to add payments in-house. We also saw an ability to go do M&A and buy other software companies in that space. And we did uh, an investment in Zola right after closing on our investment in Abacus. And really, really excited about the growth and, and the opportunity with that business. Yeah, it's funny sometimes So you need external partners to help you realize you can turn cost drivers into revenue drivers and sort of take you from A to B along that journey, which it sounds like you're helping them on now. So THL acquired a majority stake in Abacus last March. And at that point, you became a director of Abacus Next. And you're also a director of nine or so other companies, from what I understand. So what does that responsibility entail exactly? Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a it's a big responsibility, and I think, and as soon as we invest in the business, whether you're on the board or not, it's a huge commitment. You know, we are committing capital on behalf of investors in our funds that have trusted us and relied on our judgment to do deals, and so we have to generate great returns for them. And so, as a director of a company, you've got responsibilities to the business, and you know, really, as I think about it, is you're you're responsible to the business to do whatever you can to make it a great company. And so that's around, it always first starts with the management team and human capital and making sure we've got the right leaders of the business, the right organizational structure, make sure we have the right culture and values, and then kind of goes down the board. You know, what else can we do to make this a better business? Uh, technology, sales, product. So it's a pretty all-encompassing role and we interact with our companies very frequently. And so it's weekly check-ins and weekly meetings and often around various objectives. And so the board meeting is important, but it's not like oftentimes in public companies where you're only engaging with the companies in the board meeting. Here, we have a, a lot of engagement on a very frequent basis with these businesses. It probably makes the board meeting feel less all or nothing if you're you know, totally. constantly yep. communication. Makes sense. Yep, exactly. Yep. So let's switch gears and talk about another ISO. We've been a big proponent talking about insurance tech and services. And that's an area that there's bulls and bears. You know, we've seen the public markets not react too hotly these days um, with some of these marquee names, not performing to some expectations. But I know you've previously said that the sector is underinvested as compared to spaces like banking tech. So A, why do you think that is? And B, what are the parts of that ecosystem that you're really excited about? Yeah, so you know, one of the key stats that we look at just to kind of, you know, a little bit prove it out to ourselves is looking at just the public, you know, the public uh, markets and, you know, the largest banking software business is in the $100 billion range enterprise value and the largest insurance software business is about $10 billion. And back in 2004, we bought a company, uh, FIS at THL, we, we bought a stake in it. It was one of the first banking software deals done with leverage back then. And you know that was a $4 billion deal. Today, FIS is somewhere around $80 billion. 
you know, we see that same trajectory happening in the insurance space, you know, maybe 15 years later. And our real focus, you know, you touched on some of the public companies, you know, the ones that have not done well is insurance companies that are tech enabled, uh, that are, but they're still at their core insurance companies. We have not been looking at those. Our real focus has been more looking at software businesses, not insurance companies. So they're not actually, no, there's no balance sheet. There's no liabilities, insurance liabilities, but they're powering the existing insurance companies. Oftentimes, honestly, to help them compete against the, what are sometimes phrases, the insured techs, you know, the, the tech-enabled insurance companies of the world. And so really, the couple of areas we've been focused mostly is on insurance, I'm sorry, software that helps the carriers become more efficient, as well as software that enables the brokers, i.e. the distributors of, of insurance products to be more efficient. We have a business insurance technologies that serves both of those markets in the insurance and sorry, the life insurance and annuity space. Uh, and we're seeing a, a lot of additional opportunities in that space, including in the data analytics catering to insurance companies. And you know, that's a, that's a huge area of investment for us. We actually held our first ever InsureTech conference uh, end of last year uh, virtually. And we have one company today in the portfolio in that space, and we hope to have many more in the, in the future. I think you made a really important distinction, which we hear a lot in other industries considered to be, you know, separating out the infrastructure layer and the picks and shovels layer from the asset heavy or balance sheet intensive businesses. So I think that helps orient us a little bit on THL's focus. Excited to hear about whether you have future conferences in that same vein. Aside of those examples, is there a deal that you're particularly most proud of, or at least that maybe is most memorable? I know at the top of the episode, you were speaking about, you know, your first deal or the first deal that you majorly manage, but Anything that sticks out to you is just that is the deal yeah. I'll remember well into my later years. Yeah, definitely. You know, and it's one I could speak for hours on. Uh, Ceridian, we did the investment. Uh, the, the deal closed November of 2007. Uh, and so if you, if you go back and recall back what was happening yeah. in the world then, it was probably the worst time possible. We, we signed the deal in May when the world was doing well. Uh, and then in November of 07, by the time we closed, you know, there was starting to be like, you know, real issues happening in the economy, obviously from the housing crisis and whatnot. And so it was an investment. Usually you say deals had ups and downs. It had some very massive downs as the, you know, financial crisis in 08 happened right at the outset of doing this, you know, large investment for us, a very large investment for us. But thankfully with a tons of blood, sweat and tears from the company side, as well as THL, it's been an unbelievable success story. And you know, the one I think I personally have been the most satisfied with. So we did the deal in 2007. We fully ultimately exited in 2020. So 13 years, which is unusual. We typically hold deals three to five years. Uh, so it's 13 years of, of owning the business. I'm actually still on the board. And it ultimately went public in, in uh, 2019. And what was exciting about it is it was a company that was they had a great customer base, but it was a sleepy, pretty laggard technology business when we bought it. We had a plan to improve the tech, and we ended up uh, partnering with David Ossip, who was a CEO of a startup, and he ended up running the entire company, and he's just done an unbelievable job, not just the financial performance, but also just changing the culture of the business. And it's now you know, the leader in the, in the human capital management software space. Uh, the company went public, and Probably the, the, the shining moment, if you want to use that, was it was actually going to the NYSE and doing the opening and all that. And 
it, it was not about the financial returns, which were very strong, but it was just about seeing seeing the people, seeing the management team, and how proud they were to see their company now public. And you know, given it was not an all and up uphill, it was there were some serious ups and downs, and so it was the best moment of my career. And, and honestly, just seeing the management team and how excited and proud they were was was really special. That's amazing. I mean, thirteen years—that's that's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears over one. <laughs> Porco. So I understand that you feel intimately on that journey with them. So it must have been pretty exciting to be there for the bell ring. So we've talked about payments processing, InsureTech, human capital management software. I want to just ask a future looking question, which is that you'd done a previous interview with payments.com where you said that THL could study an ISO for years before it becomes an approved focus area. Are there some in the works that we might get an early preview on to put on our radar? You, know, you used a, a, a phrase which got my mind, you know, infrastructure, picks and, shov- picks and shovels, you mentioned, which I don't know if you're referencing it in relation to the same thing, but, you know, blockchain is something we're thinking about. One of our uh, associates actually did, you know, a fair amount of work kind of studying the market and produced a report. Funny enough, he then, after his two years, ended up joining a blockchain firm in the infrastructure space. And so, you know, I think from our perspective today, you know, given the kinds of deals we're looking at, it's still... Yeah, it's still more VC. It's still a little bit too early, but it's unbelievable some of the stuff happening there. And we, you know, it would not be on the currency side, but on the infrastructure, picks and shovels. Yeah, you know, I think that is something we continue to study. I don't know when it's going to be actionable for us. Uh, it doesn't feel like it's a 12 to 18 month thing, but you know, in the medium term, it does. And so we're continuing to try to study it and get as smart as we can there. Well, if, if Moore's law holds and the pace of innovation continues to compound at the rate that it is, this might be a private equity sector sooner than we know it. Yeah. So we'll certainly yeah. be keeping a watchful eye. I want to zoom out and talk about, again, private equity as a whole, because we've seen an unbelievable amount of capital chasing deals over the past few years. This really seemed to skyrocket you know, in 2021, driving a ton of investing FOMO, Shortened due diligence timelines, some, in my opinion, insanely lofty valuations. Does 2022 have the same macro setup in your view? And if so, what will THL do to stand out in this environment? I think so far it continues to feel very similar. You know, the NASDAQ has come down a bit, and particularly some of the, the high flyers, you know, the hyper growth, big money losers in the NASDAQ have come down, you know, some of the cases 50%. So Calling it a correction is probably maybe a bit of an overstatement. You've seen some caution there. But that being said, you know, the private markets are just as competitive as they are as they were last year. And you know, we expect it to continue as long as the economy is doing well. And look, the way not to be repetitive, but the way we keep differentiating is is doing what we think we do well, which is really be, be more and more specialized. I keep challenging our team, let's be super deep and narrow, like let's not try to cover everything. Let's pick our spots where we think we know this business better than the market and there's something we can do with the business, you know, with our operating team to make it an even better company. So I think for us, the the recipe to success is super deep and narrow, you know, pick your spots, know the company. You know, we have our hot list of deals in in each of our ISOs that we want to be super aggressive on when they ahead of them coming to market and and being able to move fast uh, because we've studied them for months in advance. And so I think that's you know being you know deep and narrow, specialized, and, and and partnering with our operating team to drive value. Those are the those are the ways we're we're trying to kind of uh, be successful in this competitive environment. 
Well, it's great. We look forward to seeing how you continue to deploy Fund 9. So we'll be watching and tweeting if there are major updates. <laughs> I want to bring some brevity toward the end of the episode. We always, you know, after we get through a ton of great deep content, we like to finish off with a rapid fire round where we just hear your sort of off the cuffs, very quick, short answers to a variety of totally miscellaneous questions in, in many cases. So are you up for that? Yeah, sure. All right. So first and foremost, you are head of financial technology and services, that vertical for THL. So how do you stay up to date on the fintech space, whether it's newsletters, news columns, podcasts, et cetera? What's sort of your go-to? Yeah, pretty much all of what you just said, other than podcasts, which maybe shows my age, but uh you know, we get a lot of news articles and, and deal articles of what's going on. You get access to investment research. And so read the weekly roundups on fintech. So I think it's just reading as much as possible, not listening on podcasts, though, which maybe I should ramp up. <laughs> well, I hope to convert you after you get to hear yourself on one. Maybe that'll encourage you to a repeat <laughs> well, listener. Very impressive other, other speakers. I will definitely have to check out the, the fintech podcast at Wharton. Yeah, we'd love that. All right. So outside of fintech, what investment sector are you most drawn to? If fintech was not an option, what would you like to be an investor in? Yeah, you know, uh, automation. You know, we actually uh, have an automation fund at THL, one of the first ever or the first ever. And, you know, I think obviously we're seeing what's going on in the world. Technology is enabling automation and given given the benefits of automation and, and labor shortages and whatnot, you know, it's it's amazing how much automation is happening all around us. And so that, that's a, we have a we have a separate team that that focuses there, and you know some of it's applicable, obviously, when it applies when it more specific to the vertical of financial services. But that's an area that we see tons of growth in, and you know it's really exciting what's happening. I love that answer. You retain job security even if fintech goes completely away. You just pivot <laughs> into the pod next door. Exactly, yeah. So that, that was well played. What advice would you give to postgrads starting their careers in PE right now, whether that's just leaving college or business school? I say the same to our associates who are the entry levels at, at THL is ask a bunch of questions. When you're at an entry level and, and you're younger, you get to ask a lot of questions. You get to point your career, you have to know all the answers and you can't ask questions. And so I, my biggest encouragement advice is ask a lot of questions, go into the partner's office or the, the guys above you or the team members above you and ask some questions. I think that's the best way to learn. And you have the ability to ask a lot of questions when you're younger. Or if you host a podcast. So <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Very good point. That's, yeah. that's my life hack. <laughs> what, what is a non-work related goal or resolution you have for 2022? I'm a huge resolution person. So okay. I always like to ask. Get some uh, med- uh, meditating is my uh, 22. I've got this four-week program I'm on right now. Oh, very cool. Is there a certain time of day that you meditate? I'm still playing I, around. I'm trying to have it. Yeah, stop. you know, I really try to do it in the morning. It, if I don't do it in the morning, it's so much harder, I find. I'm the same. Very cool. Okay. If you could accelerate one current trend, whether technological, social, political, economic, you name it, to the point that it becomes fully solved tomorrow, what would that be for you? Uh Probably go. I go with societal. I've been helping some of our firms DEI efforts, and you know, if you can get, I'd go with societal, and you know, getting to a, a an environment where there is full and pure equity for everyone would be a great, great outcome. Yeah, agreed on that. And finally, last but not least, 
if the CEOs of your portcos that you've worked with were asked to describe you in three adjectives, what would you want those to be? It's funny you said three adjectives because, you know, the way we describe our people at THL and what we're looking for in our people is, is smart, hungry, and humble. The first one I don't find, you know, that's not all that differentiating, but, you know, the hungry and humble side, I think, is super important. Uh, and it's hopefully how our, I'd love if my CEOs were to say that about me. Oh, I love that. All right. Well, amazing. Ganesh, so many nuggets in there. So much wisdom. I feel like we really got a glimpse into fintech private equity, which is, as I mentioned to you before the episode, an area I think that we're underexposed to on the podcast. So really appreciate your insights. We'll certainly be be following the rest of your career success. So thank you so much for being a part of this. No, thanks so much, Ali, for inviting me. It was, it was a lot of fun, a lot of great questions, and uh, really look forward to uh, checking out your podcasts. I appreciate that. Talk soon. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. To show your support, please consider rating the show, leaving us a review, or engaging with us on social media. It meaningfully helps spread the word to more listeners, which helps us continue to source our legendary guests. If you're looking for more content from Wharton FinTech, you can find us on Twitter, Medium, LinkedIn, and Instagram, all at Wharton FinTech. There you'll find interviews, articles, and most importantly, a list of ways to collaborate with us as we continue to analyze and amplify as many vantage points on the industry as we can. As always, we also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Raphael Austria. Signing off, I'm your host, Ali McCluskey, wishing you well. 